Well, good morning. Good, my mic came on. Y'all are glad I didn't come on a few minutes ago. Uh, I see some familiar faces out there. I see some folks that I don't know. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Dax Reinitz. And if you're wondering what I'm doing up here, uh, Matt and Amanda didn't miss any announcements or anything. Um, uh, Todd did actually ask me to come and stand up here this morning and uh, preach today. And I'm sure, uh, pretty sure, uh, I think even most of the elders know about it. So uh, I think I'm okay. Um, At any rate, I would value any feedback you guys have. So if y'all would like to give me any feedback or anything uh, after the message, that would be great. You can email those to me. Uh, if you want to write this down, my email address is jeff at melaniepark.org. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So I'd like to start this morning with something that, at least in my uh, short few years here, I've never seen done. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a little audience participation this morning. Okay. So we're warmed up from singing. And um, so here we go. When, uh, when Thera and I were dating, my wife Thera sitting right here, uh, we used to love to play a game called Tribond. Has anyone ever heard of this or played this before? Oh, I've got one hand. Okay. Oh, two. Two. Okay. Very good. Um, well, if you haven't, that's okay. It's a pretty simple game. I'm going to teach you really quick. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list three different things, and your job is to find the one word or phrase that they all have in common. Okay. So for example, if I were to say, Carrots, celery, and lettuce, the answer would be vegetables. Okay, yeah, look at that. This is going to be a cinch for y'all, I can already tell. Okay, so I'm going to start with an easy one. Are y'all ready? Okay, here we go. Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, LeBron James. Okay, that, that wasn't hard at all. All right, next one's going to be a little more difficult. You ready? Car tree, and elephant. Trunks. That's right. Okay. Okay. A little harder. We're going to go, we're going to go to the max here. Are you ready? Here we go. Clear your minds. Nuclear fusion, baseball caps, and donuts. Okay. That was a trick question, y'all. <laughs> I'm, I'm not aware of anything that uh, baseball caps and donuts have in common with nuclear fusion. Uh, maybe atoms, I guess. But, uh, but that is about how I felt when I first opened up our passage uh, when Todd asked me to preach. And I saw three sections titled Oaths and Retaliation and Loving Your Enemies. Uh, aren't those supposed to be like three different sermons? <laughs> how was I supposed to tie those together? So thankfully, it wasn't all on me to figure that tribe bond out. The Holy Spirit was faithful, revealed his word as I prepare. And then we've gotten some great setup from Roger Wisdom, who I uh, found out uh, he's actually uh, was in the hospital this weekend and uh, getting out this morning. So uh, y'all pray for him if you think about it. But he's done a great job the last three weeks setting everything up and giving us some good context. So by the end of our time together this morning, I hope you'll agree that these three themes, oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies, they're not just interconnected but they're inseparable, and that they all point us to the transformative power of the Spirit of God and his gospel. We'll see in our text this morning how the Spirit reshapes us, making us salt and light, and like Roger went over a couple of weeks ago, and also how the Spirit enables us to live out the character of the kingdom of God in every aspect of our lives. So if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. 
Matthew chapter 5. And then let's pray together as we open his word. God, thank you this morning for the time together, and we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's as relevant to us today as it was 2,000 years ago when you spoke it. Please open our hearts and minds to hear from you this morning and to show us how we can apply these truths to our lives. In your name, amen. All right, before we dive into the passage today, I want to take a few moments and recall the overarching theme that we've been going through uh, in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Taking a little pressure off of me this morning. Remember that he's preaching here to those disciples who have been following him, not to be confused with the 12 apostles uh, that he called. So what is a disciple? It's simply a discipline follower, someone who follows the disciplines of Jesus' teachings. So he's had this group following him, that's who he's speaking to here. He begins by describing some of the character traits that define citizens of his kingdom. Traits like meekness, mercy, and purity. As Roger discussed a couple weeks ago, it's critical to remember that these attributes are not attainable through our human efforts alone, but they're a result of the Spirit's empowering work within our hearts. In verse 13, Jesus compares his followers to salt and light emphasizing our purpose of making a positive impact on the world and bringing glory to our Heavenly Father. Just as salt enhances and preserves, Roger told us, and light dispels darkness, so we are called to bring flavor, preservation, and illumination to those around us. In verse 17, Jesus affirms that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but instead to fulfill them. Then down in verse 20, Jesus makes this really mind-blowing statement that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, those are guys who dedicated their entire lives to the study and application of the law. So unless you can achieve that level, you're never gonna be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that not to cause despair, but to bring understanding. He's telling us that our entrance into the kingdom isn't about our outward appearances or conformity. It's about our heart condition. The outcome of our eternity depends solely on the righteousness of Christ, not on our own merits. Uh, And then Roger launched into the first three um, kind of of the the, you have heard it said statements that he started a couple weeks ago. And we're going to be picking up those. So now that we're up to speed, Let's dive into our first section, and that'll be verses 33 to 37. So Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 37. This is a long section where Jesus is dealing with the differences in the law, what people had been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. The reason he's doing this is that he's already explained that he's fulfilled the law. Remember back in verse 17. But then he's also saying the way that you've heard the law taught That was not the original intent of God the Father. And so he wants his listeners to know what that original intent was so they can know what the new standard is that he wants them to live by now. So we get to verse 33. Let's read that together. And Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The scribes and the Pharisees had twisted the law from Exodus uh, 20, verse 7, that said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They, uh, They twisted it to mean that any oath which contained the name of God was absolutely binding, while any oath that Uh, successfully succeeded in evading the name of God could be broken. So this resulted in a culture of deception, which permitted taking false oaths. And in contrast to that, Jesus is saying, don't swear at all. Now, this is not talking about swearing, especially for you kids. This is not talking about swearing as in curse words, okay? This is swearing like saying, I swear on the Bible that this is the truth. You know, if you've ever heard somebody say to someone else, Um, I swear that I'm telling you the truth, or I swear on my mother's grave, I will do this or won't do that. That's the kind of swearing that we're talking about here. So Jesus reminds us that God is part of every oath anyway. It doesn't matter if his name is actually mentioned or not. Heaven is the throne of God. The earth is the footstool of God. Jerusalem is the city of God, and even your own head does not belong to you. You can't even make one single hair white or black. There's nothing in the world which does not belong to God. And therefore, whether God is actually named or not, if you take an oath or swear an oath, you're swearing by God and that oath must be honored. So then he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The point Jesus is trying to make here is that if you have to swear or make an oath, that actually betrays the weakness of your own word. It demonstrates that there's not enough weight in your character to confirm your own words. So it's better to just say, when I say yes, I mean yes, and when I say no, I mean no. It kind of reminds me of the phrase, say what you mean and mean what you say. So is Jesus' point here regarding truth-telling and honesty Uh, total prohibition against all oaths? I don't think so. Uh, In Hebrews 6 and Luke chapter 1, we see that God himself swears oaths, and Jesus also spoke under oath before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in Matthew chapter 26. I think what Jesus is trying to convey here is this. If we were truly good, we wouldn't need to take an oath. The truth of our words and the reality of our promises, they wouldn't need any additional guarantees. He's saying that what's of real importance here is integrity and truthfulness in our speech. I think his point here is that our words should reflect the reality of our renewed hearts in Christ. We no longer need oaths to strengthen or validate our words, but instead our very character should be marked by honesty reliability, and integrity. He's pointing our attention to the deeper issue of deception in our hearts and telling us that he desires a transformation that goes beyond external compliance and cultivates a heart of genuine honesty and authenticity. Okay, let's move on to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've all heard this one, right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him 
two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. While the Mosaic law did teach an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in Exodus chapter 21, the religious teachers in Jesus' time had extrapolated this command out of its original meaning. The original meaning was really meant only to be a principle um, to limit retribution for the civil government. And instead, they put it into this whole different context as an obligation in personal relationships, which it was really never intended for. And so Jesus is saying, listen, when it comes to personal things, whoever slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. Jesus is presenting the fullness of this eye for an eye law and how its idea of limiting revenge extends to accepting certain evils against yourself. So when somebody insults us, somebody you know, slaps us on the cheek, what do we want to do? We naturally want to get them back, right? We want to get back what they gave to us, maybe even a little bit more. Instead, Jesus is saying that we should patiently bear insults and offenses, and we should not seek to retaliate. We should trust God to defend us. Now, when Jesus is speaking about a slap on your cheek here, there's a lot more here than meets the eye, and it's definitely much more than just a commentary on people slapping each other. This would have been culturally understood to be an insult, not a physical attack. And also, to be clear, Jesus isn't saying here that if somebody hits you up the side of the head with a baseball bat, that you should turn around and say, oh, please hit the other side too, okay? All right, so for this, I'm going to do a little demonstration, and I've asked Anna Kate Christensen to come and help me out this morning. Anna Kate, yep, there she is. Can you come up here and help me? All right, thank you, Anna Kate. Okay, so Anna Kate, let's suppose that we're in ancient Jewish times, okay? And you are a little frustrated with me, okay? Maybe I said you look like a goat or something, okay? (laughs) And so here you are standing in front of me, and you want to insult me by slapping me, okay, with your right hand. How would you do that? Um, Oh, okay. Okay, I feel a little insulted, but not too bad, not too bad. Okay, now let's suppose that this time you're really mad at me. You've got to be really mad at me, Anna Kate, okay? And you really want to put me in my place. This time, uh, don't tell him, but I said your dad looked like a donkey, okay? Yeah. Well, according to Jewish law, hitting someone with the back of your hand, that was twice as insulting as slapping him with your open palm, okay? So Anna Kate, how would you hit me on the right cheek with the back of your right hand? Ooh. Okay, now that's an insult I'm not going to soon forget, y'all. Okay? Y'all give her a round of applause. Man, I thought asking a 12-year-old uh, girl to slap me was going to be taking the easy way out, but I guess not. Okay, y'all, so what, what Jesus is saying here is this. Remember, the cultural application of that, that was greatly insulting. And Jesus is saying, even if someone directs the most deadly, calculated insult against you, that backhand slap to the face, you must not retaliate or even resent that. I hope that you guys are never physically assaulted by a 12-year-old like I just was, (laughs) but I guarantee you that life is going to hurl insults at you, both great and small. 
How are you gonna react, kids, when your siblings insult you and put you down, when they say something mean to you? You gonna retaliate? How are you gonna respond when somebody makes fun of you on social media? What about when a classmate or maybe a teacher calls you stupid for believing the Bible over modern science? Or how about when someone mocks you for having an antiquated and narrow-minded viewpoint on abortion or pornography or some other issue of the day? And I was thinking about this one this last week. How will you reply to your wife or your husband when they start pushing your buttons? Jesus is calling us as Christians to resent no insult and to seek no retaliation. Christian, few passages in the New Testament contain more of the essence of the Christian ethic in them than this one. When we think about how Jesus himself was insulted, how he was spoken against, he was called a drunk, a glutton, an illegitimate child, and a blasphemer, how he was mocked and spit on. We see how Jesus lived out this principle in his own life. He responded with humility and compassion, not with retaliation. This is the kind of conduct that should distinguish Christians from the world. Okay? Jesus then goes on in verse 40 and he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Why does he say this? Well, under the law of Moses, the outer cloak could not be taken from someone. That's in Exodus 22, 26, and 27. Let's read that. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For this is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The point Jesus is making here is that by right, a man's cloak couldn't be taken from him permanently. So as Christians... We shouldn't stand staunchly on our legal rights, clutching our privileges, and militantly running around and suing those who uh, offend us or when we suffer the slightest infringements. As Christians, we should think not of our uh, rights, but of our duties. Not of our privilege, but of our responsibilities. Are we willing as Christians, and especially as Texan American Christians, y'all, to put our rights aside for others? I'm gonna ask that one more time. Are we, come and take it, don't tread on me, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, don't mess with Texas Christians, willing to put our rights aside like Jesus called us to here? Thank you. (laughs) Jesus continues in verse 41 and he says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What's the context here? It's really interesting because we're told here to make this very deliberate choice to give more than we're required to give. Why is that? At the time Jesus was saying this, Judea was under Roman military occupation. And under Roman military law, a Roman soldier could command a Jew, when he's coming along the road, to carry his soldier's backpack for up to one mile, but only one mile. Jesus here is saying, go beyond one mile. Do more. If one mile is required by law, then give another mile out of free choice, not out of obligation. See, that's how we let the Spirit work in our hearts and transform us. 
We can transform that attempt to maybe manipulate us or to put us down, and we can turn it into an act of love that brings glory to God our Father. How can we do this? Simply by making that choice to do more. So we see in this section how Jesus challenges a mindset of legalism and retaliation, and instead he calls us to respond with love and with grace. Retaliation perpetuates a cycle of violence and brokenness, and it breeds pain and division. Jesus invites us to break this cycle by responding with grace and compassion, and he offers us an opportunity for redemption and restoration, just like he gave to us. Sarah and I had the privilege of going to Israel a few weeks ago with quite a few folks here from Melanie Park. And towards the end of our time in Jerusalem, we went to go visit the Holocaust Museum one afternoon. And let me tell you, that was a really sobering experience. The fruit of our sinful nature of retaliation, it was on full display there as we walked through. If you're familiar with the story of Corey ten Boom, she was a Dutch Christian who lived through these unimaginable atrocities um, and went through a Nazi concentration camp where she, along with her family and friends, were subjected to the most just brutal and terrible, humiliating conditions that humans could endure. A few years after World War II, Corey was speaking in Germany, and she came face-to-face with one of the concentration camp guards who'd had a hand in her abuse as well as the death of her sister, Betsy. Corey was shocked when her previous captor came up to her and extended his hand, telling her he was a Christian now and asking her for her forgiveness. She froze, silently praying for Jesus' help, but ultimately she was able to lift her hand and shake his, and she told him that she forgave him with all her heart. She later wrote, forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It's a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. When we choose to forgive instead of retaliating, we release ourselves from the burden of resentment and bitterness. And that's a true burden, y'all. Instead, we create an atmosphere for reconciliation and for transformation. Isn't that what God's kingdom is all about? Just as God forgives us and offers us a new beginning, so we're called to extend that same forgiveness to others. Finally, Jesus brings us to the pinnacle of chapter five, and that's this radical call to love our enemies. Let's read verses 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Leviticus 19.18, the Mosaic law commanded, you shall love your neighbor. But some teachers in the day of Jesus had added a bit of an opposite and really kind of evil misapplication 
of this principle, and that was to therefore hate your enemy. So not just love your neighbor, but also hate your enemy. Instead, Jesus reminds us that in the sense that God means it, all people are our neighbors, even our enemies. So to truly fulfill this law, we have to bless and do good and pray for our enemies, not just our friends. Jesus understood in saying this that we are going to have enemies. I have them and you will have them too, but we are to respond to them in love and trust God to protect our cause and also really to destroy our enemies in the best way that he possibly can. How is that? It's by transforming those enemies into our friends. That's the thing that I think it's difficult for us to think of is how can I make this person who's an enemy into a friend? How do you do that? We should think like that. Instead of asking God to destroy our enemies, we should ask God how he can help us transform those enemies into our friends. It's not always possible, but we should at least ask God. That should be our response. In verse 45, it says, why do we do this? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So in doing this, we're imitating God who shows love towards his enemies by making his son, S-U-N, shine on the evil and on the good. And he sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. He does it deliberately. He's doing nothing by mistake here and nothing without a purpose. So what does God communicate to us by this action? He loves his enemies, so we should love our enemies also. By loving our enemies and blessing them if we can, we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. The text says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I feel like Jesus is stating the obvious here. He's saying, what are you doing if you only love people who love you? Everybody does that. Is it virtuous if we just merely return the love that's being given to us? There's nothing Christian about that. Remember, Jesus here is teaching us the character of the citizens of his kingdom. He's saying, this is what you should be like. He started at the beginning of chapter five. If you'll remember, we, uh, we studied this last year. He started chapter five with the Beatitudes. And he tells us through the Beatitudes, these are the attitudes that we should have. Now going on, he's saying, this is the character that you should have. This is what your character should be like. And guys, we should expect our character to be different from the character that we see in the world. And there's many good reasons why more should be expected of us as Christians than non-Christians. Why is that? It's because we claim to have something that others don't have. We claim to be renewed. We claim to be redeemed. And we claim to have repented to Jesus Christ. Well, if you do all those things, you'd better be different. (laughs) And we do have something that other people don't have. We are redeemed. We are repentant. We are renewed, and we've done this through Jesus Christ, and we do have a power in us that other people don't have. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We have the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us if we're believers now, and we have a better hope and a better future than non-Christians do. So we should act differently. We should have different character in our hearts. 
All right, this leads us to the last verse of this first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. That's verse 48. Jesus starts here with you, therefore. And with the word, therefore, Jesus is summing up everything that he said in chapter five. Okay, so the Beatitudes that we studied last summer, everything that Rogers brought us through the last three weeks, everything that we've covered this morning, he's summing all of that up and he's saying, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So if we could live the way that Jesus told us here in chapter five, we would be truly perfect. We'd never hate, slander, or speak evil of another person. We'd never lust in our heart or our minds. We'd never covet anything. We'd never make a false oath. We'd never be anything more than completely truthful. We would always let God defend our personal rights and we would never take it upon ourselves to defend those rights. We would always love our neighbors and we would even love our enemies. And if we could just keep doing what Jesus told us to do here, then we would truly have a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the very thing that we must have to enter into God's kingdom is righteousness. And this here in chapter five, this is how we get it. Righteousness, being made right with God. How are we made right by, with God? It's by living like this. Did you get that? All we have to do to obtain righteousness is follow all the rules and live exactly like we're taught here in chapter five. There's just one catch. Only one person has ever been able to do that, and that's Jesus Christ. So what about the rest of us mere mortals? Does that mean that we're left out of the kingdom of God? I'm glad you asked. See, Jesus' goal in this passage was not to give us a list of all the things that God requires of Christians in their daily lives. While it's true that Jesus reveals through this chapter his ultimate standard, and we must take that to heart, his primary intent here is to say that if you wanna go be righteous by the law, like the scribes and the Pharisees, then you must keep the whole law, not just externally with your actions, but internally in your heart and your mind as well. That is, you must be perfect, which we know we can't be. So how can we be made perfect? We can only be made perfect through Jesus and through the power of his spirit. Through these examples in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demonstrates that we need a righteousness that is apart from the law. And Paul reiterates this in Romans 3.21. Paul says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So what is our current relationship to the law, our relationship is that we're exposed as guilty for not keeping the law. Unlike the view held by the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, we can never make ourselves righteous. We can never be good enough by just doing good works. So we can't just be modern day scribes and Pharisees. That's not what chapter five is all about. 
when it comes to understanding the interpretation and the demands of the law, then we do ourselves a favor when we remember another aspect of Jesus' teaching on the law. In focusing on the command to love God and our neighbors in Matthew 22, that's when we rightly understand the demands and the details of the law. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 says, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And then the Apostle Paul wrote very much the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He said, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. And I think that's the main takeaway from our text today. It's that we would have pure hearts, a clear conscience, and genuine faith to apply Jesus' teachings to the best of our ability. I can't be perfect, but I am called to live by God's standards. I can't just say, well, I'm covered in grace and mercy, so I'm not even gonna try. No, Jesus teaches us here in this sermon that this is how he wants us to live And so we're called to obey that. But how can we do this? Remember, none of us are perfect. We can do it, as Philippians 4 said, through Christ. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So anytime I say, anytime you say, I can't do that, you're right in the fact that you can't do it without Christ. But you're wrong in the fact that with Christ, you actually can. We can do these things. So Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it goes beyond our adherence to moralistic rules and regulations. He's calling us to a life that we can only live by surrendering to him and allowing ourselves to be transformed by the power of his spirit. That's the inseparable theme. That's the tri-bond that brings oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies together. That's what binds them. It's about Jesus changing our hearts. Are you willing to stop worrying about your external compliance and start focusing on your heart? Will you surrender to Jesus and let him change you? As we leave here today, may our words be marked by integrity. May our responses be shaped by grace. And may our love be extended even to our enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would live with a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith, with a belief that we really can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. Uh, I, I love those lyrics. Aren't those great? Um, Brad just came up and told me uh, he just got a text and Roger's back home. So that's great to hear. Um, as we think about those lyrics, I, I just think it's great. What's the purpose of surrender? As we think about surrendering um, those lyrics, it says, All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. 
let thy blessing fall on me. So what's the purpose of surrender? It's to be filled with his love and his power. And it's not just for our own good, but it's for the good of those around us. Okay? So in light of our passage this morning, let's uh, give ourselves to the Lord and let's let him fill us up. I hope everybody enjoys your afternoon, this beautiful weather, and have a great Independence Day, everybody. See you all soon.